What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest CSG podcast. I am, of course, your host, Jeff Morton. Uh, with me today is a frequent guest, a good friend of mine, someone who I really do miss on the Nuggets beat, um, but he is kicking ass on the uh, Broncos beat for the Athletic. Um, he is uh, among the um, notable things about him is uh, he is much taller than me. It is uh, my friend, <laughs> Nick Cosmiter. Hello, Nick. Well, hey Jeff, how you doing? I covering the Nuggets for as long as you have that that's something you're used to. So, I think <laughs> I think you're all right. <laughs> yes, well, look. Look, I, there's very I and, think and, there's one person shorter than me on <laughs> covering the Nuggets. Right. Well, and the, and the beauty of doing this over Zoom is uh, we're on, you know, we're on an we're, even plane here. Well, right, right. And it's in picture right now. I look a little taller. Um, there you so, go. <laughs> there we go. I've, I've moved up. Um, so uh, before uh, I get too into it, uh, anything uh, anything new with you? I mean, this is like right before you have to go cover training camp. So uh, how have you been spending your off season? Yeah, this is the relative calm before the storm when it comes to covering the NFL. Um, it truly has become an 11 month uh, a year job between uh, the, you know, the season ends and then you go right into like, um, you know, you have owners meetings, you have the scouting combine, um, you have, uh, you know, pro days, uh, and then the draft free agency. It's just, it's just kind of unrelenting. And, um, you know, you throw in mini camps, OTAs, yeah. uh, it just, it just keeps going. You look up and you're like, Oh, it's the beginning of July. I better, better burn off some of this mountain of PTO time that you've accumulated. So have been trying to take a little bit of time off, um, here and there, but also knowing that once, um, once training camp starts, man, it's just, uh, it's just go from the jump. So trying to yeah. mentally prepare for that and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just enjoy some time with the family the next couple of weeks. Well, it's uh, off seasons. I, well, we're, we're right in the middle of the off season for the Nuggets right now. So, well, it's summer league, but you know, it's off season. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of the Nuggets, uh, obviously, uh, Nick was on the Nuggets beat for a while, and um, you obviously, I uh, well, at least I hope, been keeping an eye on uh, the goings on. Notably, the biggest, uh, the biggest shock of the off season, obviously, was Tim Connolly leaving for um, what I can only describe is a building's worth of money. And um, <laughs> going to uh, a place where it's far snowier than for than Denver, Colorado, to the Minnesota Timberwolves. So when you saw that, what was your initial re- uh, reaction to that? Yeah, I, I was I was surprised, and you know, as you noted, I haven't been kind of there on the on the day to day basis for a while now. But but just you know, you um, you know, you just sort of associate this whole entire era of of this Nuggets and the current success they're having uh, with Tim Conley. And, and so I certainly didn't envision him uh, really leaving while they were still kind of chasing this thing and, and obviously believing that, um, you know, while hoping for good health and while understanding that, you know, a million different things could go wrong, that they're approaching this coming season with the idea that they can compete for a championship. And, you know, you would have, you, you would have not envisioned that happening um, without Tim at the wheel, but, um, you know, as a lot of you guys who cover the team, yourself included, have done a really good job laying out is just some of the some of the extenuating circumstances that sort of forced his hand in a way or, or that he allowed to kind of help him make that decision. Um, but but I also my other thought was just that, um, you know, that they, they are lucky um, and part of it is their own kind of eye for these people in the front office, but lucky to have a guy like Alvin Booth just ready to step in and go because he is, he's a, he's a brilliant guy. I, I think I went back the other day and read this story that I had written um, back in 2018. So about four years ago, and he had just been, I think moved to the assistant GM role. Yeah. Um, 
but it's all about how he had gone to to Ireland shortly after his like playing career was over and just basically built this like you know Irish club that had been kind of falling on hard times didn't have a lot of resources didn't have a lot of know-how mm-hmm. um you know they, they had a lot of passion but they didn't have a lot of know-how in terms of like how to build a successful program and he just kept flying over there into Ireland and like throwing these camps and just like you know, talking to people who, you know, they, he helped them completely kind of change the trajectory of what they were doing. So, um, that's just kind of the guy he is in terms of the passion for the game and his, his just sort of love for it and, uh, his ability to get things done. So I think they're in, they're in good shape. Um, and, and I do wonder, and I'm kind of rambling here, I apologize, but I I do wonder whether if, you know, if Tim hadn't left, whether he would have, um, you know, been ready and willing to, to make a move that traded, you know, two players who he is, you know, obviously so incredibly fond of and Monte Morris and Will Barton, um, you know, a trade that I think you needed to be made when you just look at the, the composition of the, of the roster. Um, but you know, Calvin went to work right away on that. So it's, it's just, it's just one of those things that you sort of wonder about. Yeah. I was wondering, because I was trying to remember, um, when you left the beat, it was, it was in the off season, 2019, right? Uh, it was in, um, it was in 2020. So it was actually during, it was during the stoppage of, um, of that, of that season. Right. So Mm -hmm. right before the nuggets kind of made their way to the bubble, um, is when I got moved over to cover the Broncos. Um, so basically it was essentially right before that training camp, um, which, you know, existed, uh, in, in a much different form. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I, right before, but I, I helped cover that, that bubble run, right. That run to the Western conference finals was sort of kind of the last, and then I guess ended up covering again because <laughs> those seasons all bled together, um, <laughs> ended up helping with the playoff coverage, uh, in 2021 when they, um, you know, beat the, beat the trailblazers in the first round before ultimately falling to the sun. So that's right. Have, have, have more or less, you know, stuck around. It's, it's hard not to pay attention. Well, I was going to say, because, uh, um, you were a constant presence on the beat for, um, since you were at the post, um, way back, way back in the day now. But I was thinking at the same time, I'm like, where, where, where did Nick end? Because I'm like, I'm trying to remember which which parts of this, these moving moving parts. And did and you actually got, you're covering a, a playoff run that didn't feature Jamal Murray. So yeah. there is, there, the Nuggets have gone through some is, issues the last two years, specifically because of Jamal and Michael Porter Jr. going out. So my question to you would be from an outsider's perspective, since you're not there every day anymore, looking at this team, um, did this team strike you as a a, a championship potential team in in their current iteration? Um, And by that, I mean, if these players like MPJ and uh, Jamal were back, did you did it, did you think of them as a a contending championship level team, or do you think the moves they have made this off season with Contavious Caldwell Pope and DeAndre Jordan for some reason, and uh, and uh, you know bringing these guys in and the draft picks, do you think that's edged them closer if they they're fully healthy? Healthy. Well, to the first part of your question, I I kind of bought what what Michael Malone and, you know, Conley were selling, um, you know, in that April of 2021 range, right before Jamal Murray went down right after they had um, traded for Aaron Gordon and kind of figured out his role. And you had that top four of uh, Joker, Jamal, MPJ and Aaron Gordon, um, you know, with, with Will Barton right there. Um, you know, that, that team I thought was as good as they put on the floor 
um, since this run began. And it, and it was a shame. I mean, uh, because Jamal Murray, we, we had just seen what he'd done in the bubble. He was gearing back up toward that gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they were poised to, I think, um, you know, make a real run. Now Phoenix was, that was going to be a handful regardless of kind of what, what sort of health they were in. Um, but, but I did think that they, they had a puncher's chance against anybody that, um, whether they're, they've inched forward now really just depends on, uh, you know, not only uh, MPJ is a huge wild card. We don't know if his, if his back is ever going to truly hold up, if it's going to allow him to, to play a full season or whether they need to come up with a plan, um, in which they sort of slow play him through the regular season and have him ready to compete in the playoffs. Um, but also whether Jamal Murray will, how long it will take him to kind of get back to what he was uh, in that bubble and, and in the days and weeks preceding his, his ACL tear. I just think that those are the biggest, those are the biggest questions. I think what they have to do is figure out a way to not have to depend highly on Michael Porter Jr. Because I think if, if they're going to win it, he's going to need to be a piece. They're going to have to cross their fingers and hope he's healthy, but they also need to not put all their eggs in that proverbial basket because his, his injury history is, is what it is. It's just so tenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, if they can find ways to do that, um, and Jamal Murray by the kind of the mid to, to latter part of the season can kind of get back to something resembling what he was, then, then I think they will give himself themselves a, a chance. I obviously like the defensive upgrades that they've got now. Um, but it's just, there's so many moving parts that it's hard to predict. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's weird because, you know, you've seen this and, uh, we'll transition over to your, uh, co- uh, coverage of the Broncos here in a sec, but, um, you know, you know, Jamal and you covered Jamal for a while. My worry with Jamal is I didn't like my, this is just from the, uh, I mean, I'm vaguely, I'm, I'm, the, I'm insider outsider. So my perspective on Jamal has always been his mental toughness is what really got him over. And uh, he's not the most athletic player, but he, you, he will outwork you every single time. You can see every fiber of Jamal's being going into playing on the basketball court. My worry about this is I didn't like just from my perspective, how he ended um, this injury rehab era. And how it seemed how how he was legitimately spooked about coming back. That is my worry. I'm actually with 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 MPJ. I'm not as worried because it's like it's a binary thing. Either he can play or he can't. Either he can get on the court or he can't. And uh, right. there's no doubt that that he desperately wants to. That's how he had a setback last year. Was he was desperately trying to get back on the court. Um, with Jamal, I'm like that the fact that he got so spooked about coming back and it's been now, it'll be 18 months between his injury and him coming back. That's what worries me. So from your, you covering Jamal, uh, do you think it it is my perspective on this thing, I guess a little skewed? No, I I think it's a good point. And, and I think with him is you're right. Cause he is just sort of like, he is one of those kind of warrior mentality type guys. And, and that is what has carried him. You know, we all know the stories about his his dad and how he grew up, um, you know, learning the game in this is sort of way where, you know, excuses aren't uh, aren't allowed. You, you don't leave until you've you've um, you know, hit the, the required measurements, no, no matter how hard it is, no matter how long it takes you. Right. Uh, so and, and that and you can see all that in the way that he continues to work after practices, how he stays for an hour shooting 
you know, free throws and lows when he misses one, those, those things have all been on display since he got here in 2016. Um, and so I do think that for him, this was that first like real bout of adversity. I think the first time that not, not, not bout of adversity because he's gone through, you know, some shooting things early in his career that he had to figure out some mental, some mental battles, but in terms of like the physical and, and how that relates to the, the, the mental aspect of it, this is kind of the first real test for him. And, and I, I think he was discovering some things about himself and just sort of, um, you know, how to, how to maintain that confidence. Um, so it, it's just, it, it's, it's to me, it, it was, I think worrisome, but I also just think that there was some, you know, some messaging issues that they had where it was just like, you know, they, they probably should have helped him just come to that decision sooner and, and been a little more kind of unified on how to present it. And I think that would have probably helped a little bit and allowed him to just kind of then turn his focus, not have to kind of battle that as much and just be ready when this season starts. But hopefully at least now there, there won't, there'll be less doubt when he comes back. Right. Because as you mentioned, 18 months, um, you know, his, his knee is as good as it will, will be. It's, it's, he's got to perform on that at this point. So that, that'll be the kind of the interesting part of it to watch is, is he a lot more ready to come back now? Okay. So speaking of, uh, of, of moving parts and, um, different approaches, the Broncos have, uh, well, since you and I actually spoke about this, it was the off season of last year. So obviously things have changed. Teddy Bridgewater is no longer here. Drew Locke is no longer here. Uh, and the Broncos have a new owner. So uh, we'll take this in the order of importance, I guess. As, as, uh, first off, I am I am relieved that they have uh, the Broncos have a new owner. Um, I think being rudderless and ownerless uh, fundamentally affected the way they operated and how they were. And I think now that they've got an owner, at the very least, um, they'll have a, a something at the top. They'll have firm leadership. So, just on your your just your ten thousand foot view of uh, the Broncos' new ownership and how that'll kind of guide their way through this season. Yeah, I think I think that's a matter of what, what you're talking about of, of perception eventually becoming reality, right? I mean, um, the uh, the Broncos for a long time, you know, pushed back um, vehemently on the notion that um, without sort of a firm controlling owner in place that they were um, kind of wandering in, in the dark, right? That they pushed back on that notion and they would point to things like the resources that they continued to provide for both the front office and for the coaching staffs and, and for the players. And, um, you, you know, uh, George Payton pointed to the fact that when they had this head coaching search uh, earlier back in the winter, um, you know, that they were, they were given this, you know, playing in these resources to fly a search committee all over the country to, to, uh, to interview candidates in person. And so, so there was, there was some truth to that. They, they didn't financially cut a lot of corners just because they didn't have um, a rich owner in place. Um, you know, and, and Pat Bowen never was the, the richest owner in, in the league by any stretch of the imagination. And, and yet they still provided those things. Um, so that it wasn't that that fell off, but when you start having these losing seasons, when you don't have maybe a top voice that, that makes it clear, um, you know, kind of, how you have to go about searching for a quarterback and, and, and making it the priority that it probably needs to be. Um, and, and then the losing starts and you have, you have the infighting with, you know, with the family members, though perception becomes reality at that point. Right. And so for them to sort of have now moved past that um, and have a clear kind of hierarchy that's going to exist now um, with Rob Walton being the controlling owner, but his son-in-law, Greg Penner and his daughter, Carrie Walton Penner being sort of the day-to-day 
um, you know, leadership in charge of the franchise, um, that pecking order while also still giving all the football decision-making to George Payton, who is clearly, I think, um, you know, added a, at a strong dose of kind of organization and, you know, professionalism and all that kind of stuff since he arrived in early 2021. Um, I think those components will, that will have a steady effect. Now it will help that they also got this quarterback who takes them off of that carousel. Um, because it, it, this is a sport where you can have all the right things in place. You can have the, you have the organization, you can have the, the accountability, um, you know, but, but David Tepper, who bought the Panthers a couple years ago and is finding out if you do not have a quarterback, all these things that you so desperately want to have work out, just don't work out. So he's in a Rob Walton and, and his group are in a, are in a good position, assuming that Russell Wilson is still going to kind of be able to perform like the way that he has for much of his 10 year career. Um, they're in a spot much like, you know, Pat Bowen was when he bought the team and, and, and just inherits John Elway, the, the, at that time, the greatest kind of college prospect of all time, who was just entering his second season in the NFL when Bowen right. bought the team, um, you know, would Pat Bowen be in the hall of fame? If not for John Elway, probably not. Um, so it's yeah. just one of those things where the, the ownership is, is probably, I wonder, it, it probably would be hard to, hard to truly know, um, how Wilson's presence affected the ultimate price because it was going to probably go for 4 billion either way. But I really do wonder how much his, his presence and this idea that, Hey, they're going to, you're going to be able to be competitive from the very start, how much that also affected sort of the demand uh, for the team. Oh yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. I always draw a correlation because, you know, I am Jeff, the nuggets guy. Um, I always draw a correlation <laughs> to the way the nuggets were in the nineties with the Broncos. Um the Nuggets had terrible ownership, uh, uh, owners that didn't want the team. And, but in, in this, in the same time they did, and it was this weird nebulous situation where there was this halfway in halfway out thing. And uh, it really affected the, 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 the kind of the trajectory of the team. It's, it's kind of a nebulous thing to talk about because they had two years, they beat, um, you know, they're the first one seed to beat an eight seed in NBA history. Right. So obviously yeah. you think, well, there's a success there. But the problem was the tone was not set and it got worse and worse and worse. And what I was seeing with the Broncos is despite was despite George Payton being there, the tone was relentlessly, um, especially with the litigation going on and all this stuff. It was just kind of negative. There wasn't a, there was like, we're not going, obviously this is not going to be a permanent situation. Uh, the Nuggets were put up for sale in 1997 and didn't get sold until 2000. It took three years for them to get sold. So this uh, kind of was a very similar situation. It was uh, they're finding an owner, finding someone to get there. So they get uh, Robson Walton coming in and, and now Condoleezza Rice. And uh, you've got a, from what, from all perception is a stable ownership that wants to create something. My, my question to you is like, with addition to this ownership, there's been a lot of a speculation about them trying to get a, a different stadium in town, uh, do different facilities, all this stuff. Do you, have you heard anything about them potentially looking at that or is that just something that we as fans speculate about? Yeah, I think at this point, all we, all we kind of really have is, is speculation. Um, you know, obviously the, the Walton Penner ownership group hasn't, hasn't had any kind of a press conference. I, I think that the, 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 the final sort of formal uh, approval of the NFL, which is viewed as a formality at this point um, will come through in, in about the middle of August. And so I would expect that that time is when is the first time that they'll probably 
you know, greet the public and kind of lay out some of their plans. Um, but I think I think those things are certainly worthy of speculation. If you look at Empower Field at Mile High, um, you know, it was just two decades ago that it opened, uh, but it is already in the middle of the pack in terms of um, in terms of age, right. In terms of, uh, longevity. And, and so you're already kind of peeking around the corner at some of these stadiums out here in the West, um, and, and seeing that they, that they have exploded in terms of both their, you know, their capacities, their technologies, uh, all these sort of things. And power field is still a good stadium. Um, it, there, it needs obvious work. Um, so to me, it's a matter of like, you know, what, what's the ego involved in this? You know, does Rob Walton come in and say, I'm by far the richest owner in the NFL. I, I need to have um, that kind of stadium at, at 77 years old. Does he try to, you know, put it into gear quicker because he wants to, you know, he wants to be around to, um, you know, to really kind of enjoy it for a long time. Uh, those are, those are some of the questions to ask. And then where, where does it get put? They, they have that land uh, in downtown that, you know, that is kind of set aside for sort of retail and, and residential development that the city approved a while ago. Um, but is now has been kind of on hold because of the pandemic and everything like that. Um, do they kind of get it done there in the footprint of the current one, or do they do they move it out, you know, out north, kind of toward the airport where there's a lot more available land, and kind of build something like what the Cardinals have, uh, where, where they just sort of erected a mini city and put a stadium in there. Um, mm-hmm. That'll all be interesting to to, to watch, but I, I I doubt that it'll happen. I doubt that they're going to show up in August and say, hey, here's the plan, new stadium, we're going to break ground in two years, whatever. Right, I, I right. think they're going to want to come in here and really sort of evaluate it for a while. Obviously with the wealth of this ownership group, they're going to have experts in every field who kind of help them analyze all this, all this stuff. So um, yeah, I, I, I wish I had a better answer, but it's kind of a buckle up and just sort of, sort of wait at this point. But um, I wouldn't expect any kind of resolution on that front, um, you know, anytime within the next, you know, six months, maybe by the end of this upcoming season is when they'll, they'll lay out maybe more of a firm plan for that. Well, um, now get back to some players here, but I guess the, really the biggest thing in this offseason has been uh, um, the corniest man alive, um, Russell Wilson, the new quarterback of the Denver Broncos. Um, regardless of what people may think of his actual skill at this point in his career, um, he is a clear upgrade over what they had, which fundamentally is what they needed. They needed a, um, a quarterback who there wasn't a question mark about. They need, they needed to get out of the treadmill of constant quarterback competitions. Um, they needed to get out of all that and they got it. And um, so from your perspective, looking at this, this Nuggets team, this Broncos team is, <laughs> is how do you, when just with just removing everything else, just with the addition of Russell Wilson, how does that change the fortunes of this team? Does he by himself move them far more? I mean, what, what was their record last year? Six and 11. Was that, uh, they were gosh, <laughs> seven and 10. Seven and, and 10. 10, seven and 10. So obviously we are probably both thinking the same thing. They're, they're not going to be seven and 10 next year. So is, is, is how much do you think uh, Russell Wilson affects their fortunes this year? Yeah. I, I mean, to start, he makes them far more relevant. Um, right. You know, last year, the Broncos only had one scheduled national television game going into the year. It was a Thursday night game in October against the Browns, which is about the least sexy uh, national television matchup you could possibly have. Um, They were later flexed into a Sunday night matchup with the Chiefs um, after they had kind of 
you know, kind of flirted with the winning record in November and sort of were on the periphery of the, of the playoff race. Um, so that was sort of the position that they put themselves in uh, to be able to get that game. But now they come out and there's, you know, there's six national television games off the top. They could be flexed into um, another couple. They're opening the season on Monday night football. Um, and so I, I think from that perspective, it just gives them more juice that I think a lot of players, um, you know, kind of thrive on. Uh, there is, there is, I think, a kind of a wearing effect of it kind of going into every year and trying to kind of talk yourselves into, you know, being relevant, being good, being all these sort of things and getting people excited and trying to, you know, try, talk your way into this stuff. I, I think they're, they're glad to now be going into a season where um, there's not a lot of things that they have to just imagine where, Hey, if this goes right, if this goes right, if this goes right, um, you know, maybe we have a chance to make the playoffs. Right. And so I think that has added a, a degree of levity, um, of like just lightness to, to kind of the off season that I haven't seen since I've been on, on the beat. Uh, but that's, that stuff that I've just described is all sort of tangential. Does he actually make them better on the field? Well, yes, they, they have had one of the worst offenses in the league for the last five or six seasons. Um, he will make that better, uh, as will Nathaniel Hackett, who, um, is the brightest offensive mind that they've had. Um, in this organization for, you know, since Gary Kubiak was here. Mm -hmm. Um, so those things automatically, I think will make them better. You have good health, you have, you have some playmakers. Um, but all of that being said, um, they play in a very difficult division, arguably the hardest in football, uh, with three other teams that also have good to great quarterbacks. Um, and, and they have other teams on their schedule. Um, you know, they, they play an MVP and Matt Ryan, they play the reigning Super Bowl winning quarterback. In, in Matthew Stafford, they play, um, you know, another MVP and former MVP in Lamar Jackson that they, they, there are so many, um, kind of potholes potentially on their schedule that they could be a much better football team and still have to be scratching and clawing, um, to get there. And, and so I'll close it with this, the, the most, the biggest thing in my mind is how quickly Russell Wilson and Nathaniel Hackett can sort of, I guess, smooth out what will be an obvious even for a veteran quarterback who his heart does, um, who is as sick as he is, who has been as much as he has, um, he's playing in a new place for the first time in his decade-long career. He's playing with a first-time head coach who's mm -hmm. calling plays for the first time in about four or five seasons. Um, so there is a lot of newness. Um, you know, that they're incorporating a whole new blocking scheme with, with new assistant coaches at every turn. There, there's just a lot new. Um, you know, from like, you know, from the uh, assistant offensive line coach all the way to ownership, it's, it's just a completely new um, era. And, and so how quickly can he as the quarterback and Hackett as the head coach come together to sort of like, you know, get past some of that um, and then be ready for what is going to be um, their, uh, you know, their final stretch run of the, of the season that has a lot of really difficult games on it. You know, and, and Nathaniel Hackett is a, is a, another of the big unknowns uh, because this is his first time being a head coach. You don't know, obviously, what he is as a head coach yet, has not been established because this is his first time. So we we don't know how this will go. Um, from all from the outside looking in, he's a good offensive uh, coach, um, great offensive coach. So just fundamentally, there when you look at Nathaniel Hackett. And you kind of already hinted at this with the uh, with the Russell Wilson answer, but um, is he aided by the quarterback, or will the quarterback be aided by him? I know it's always a great collaborative uh, relationship, but do you think that 
Russell Wilson will have greater influence about the, the, the direction, or do you think it's Nathaniel Hackett? Well, I think part of why Russell Wilson wanted out of Seattle is because he wanted to be able to put his thumb a little more firmly on the operation as a whole, at the, the kind of the franchise direction, um, but certainly kind of the, the schematic offensive direction. Now, this is Nathaniel Hackett's offense. It's what he's bringing from, um, you know, being a Matt LaFleur um, kind of disciple the last three years in Green Bay. It's, it's from that that Shanahan outside zone tree. Um, so so that that sort of framework, um, you know, belongs to Hackett. And that's what he is implementing here. And it's one that suits Wilson, who's going to be, you know, kind of a, a bootleg rollout passer a lot of the time. Um, the, you know, the outside zone running is such that, that um, it's supposed to make some of his strengths more effective uh, because it's supposed to keep the defense theoretically off balance more uh, because runs and passes uh, look the same. That, that's sort of like the, uh, that, that's sort of like the layman's foundation of this offense. Right. Um, so that's going to be Hackett's. But what I think that Wilson is going to have here is, is sort of a, a say in the philosophy of like, what are, what are we, what are we really trying to do philosophically? Um, you know, how, how much, you know, how much do we want to be a passing team? Um, what, what are some ways that I can be better protected than I was in Seattle? And then, and sometimes that will be having conversations with Wilson of like, you, you have to play your part in that and, and as well. Right. We, we can't always live for the, for the big play. So to, long story short, it's gotta be, it's gotta be collaborative, but, yeah. but Wilson came here with a first time head coach. Um, and again, he, he was traded here, but it, it was essentially a free agency, right? Because right. Seattle had agreed to, to trade him. Uh, he had a no trade clause, which meant that he got to somewhat more or less pick his destination. And he picked a place where with a first time head coach with a lot of new assistants, um, a team that is desperate to win, that he was going to be able to come in and, and, and insert his influence. I think right. that's what's going to happen. Well, uh, in, in hand and glove in this and then thank you for coming on. Uh, I really appreciate it, uh, Nick. I'm absolutely. I, I my 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 other question is is kind of a more of an NFL based one, but it, it's do you think that the the way that the the Los Angeles Rams went about winning their Super Bowl last year, going all in on uh, but trading draft pick after draft pick after draft pick, going sacrificing largely their future to get this one title. Do you think that will have an effect on the way teams maybe get less risk averse? I always thought the 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 NFL trade deadline is always a dud because the, the, the basically the system is designed to force all the players into free agency anyway. So it's it's a it's churn as Mark Cuban would say. Um, but there is a the way that the Rams approached it by trading assets, leveraging their assets, and getting. Von Miller at the trade deadline and, and, and really beefing themselves up for a Super Bowl run. Do you think that will influence the way teams approach going forward? Like, like not being as risk averse, not hoarding draft picks, not, not hoarding players at the deadline and finally just thinking we're going to go for it. Now this is the Rams did it and they proved it could work. Maybe we can do it now. Yeah. I think it already has sort of taken that form. Um, You saw it this year. There were, I, I believe there were fewer teams um, that had a first round pick than there had been in, uh, you know, 20 years or something like that, because there, there was a number of teams Broncos included, um, who had shipped off their, 
first round picks for star talent. The Dolphins did it for Tyreek Hill. The Raiders did it for Devontae Adams. Uh, the Broncos obviously did it for Russell Wilson and the Rams did it 12 times. So they're not going to have a first round pick until Sean McVay's kids are ready to play in the NFL. Um, and so I, I do think, I do think that you're, you're seeing that, um, you know, teams are saying we can create, you know, off ramps to, to um, you know, and pivot points some other way um, outside of just having these draft picks. Um, and so how do we do that? Well, the, the guy that you trade for, he has to work with, with the Rams. It did Matthew Stafford, um, was everything they thought he would be. Uh, and he's a good cop for, for Russell Wilson, kind of the same age. Uh, there's some, some similarity in the way that they play. Um, although Stafford is more of the bigger prototypical type quarterback. Um, you know, they're both a little, you know, agile. There, there's some similarities to how they play. Um, and, and certainly both now play within this zone type scheme. Um, so I, I think you're already seeing it. And, yeah. and the key now becomes, Every other decision you make, um, you have to hit with a pretty high percentage. Your, your third round, fourth round draft picks have to become contributors. Um, you're, you have less margin for error. Your salary cap choices have to be um, you know, really strong. You can't necessarily go out and splurge in free agency the way you might otherwise because you have a uh, $50 million quarterback on your payroll. So those are all parts of it. But I, I think what's part, part of the thing you're just seeing is um, – you have to have the quarterback in place. Even, even though the Rams had gotten all the way to the Super Bowl, um, they saw a hard ceiling with Jared Goff. Many other teams are seeing uh, a similar ceiling uh, with quarterbacks who were deemed as, as good, but not fully the answer. Mm-hmm. And I think what you're seeing more is like, there are more teams are saying, hey, we're either in for a championship run or, or we're, we're not in for, for anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, there's less of this sort of, I think, patience uh, and because so much of it revolves around the, this, the quarterback and the league has become more that way over the last 10 years. So teams are going to continue to search for them, even though, uh, there's, there's just only seemingly a finite amount of them every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but they're going to be, I think less and less afraid to, to give up what it takes, uh, in order to get them. Man. And, and, and that's a, that's a great answer because I, that's really what I've been thinking too. So, I mean, it is, it is, it's going to, I think it's kind of a new era in the NFL. The NFL really has been kind of stuck in this, this mold of, 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 for it just like waiting for free agency. And I think the trade aspect of it is something that is really more of an NBA esque avenue yeah. of it. You know, like, look, I was in the offseason, I was like, if, if, I, I wish the Broncos could have drafted a, a quarterback like Joe Burrow or something like that. I said, Oh man, yeah. that would have been wonderful. Could I have this guy for like 12, 15 years. Um, but in the NFL right now, maybe they're not thinking that you have to draft that quarterback. Maybe they're thinking a guy like Russell Wilson or uh, unfortunately Deshaun Watson or, or maybe Baker Mayfield and in, uh, in Carolina now is going to be on the market. We can change our fortunes there and we just got to give up more assets than we're used to. Yeah. And, and the problem, the, you know, the other thing being is that, um, you know, the, the Burroughs and the Andrew Lux of the world are just such a, such a rare, like the idea of a sure thing as a quarterback, despite how much it, it's wild that, you know, at, at a lower level, kids are getting trained and indoctrinated into the position, um, you know, earlier than ever. They're, they're, they're high priced quarterback coaches. There's all these things that go into building a quarterback. And yet, it, it, it's, we're not, we're not seeing any more like consistent, um, you know, first round picks who succeed there. There's still such a, uh, wild variance of, of how quarterbacks succeed as first round picks and second round picks. Um, despite all the attention and all the resources that have gone into grooming players for that position. Um, and so 
you, you, you do come to realize that the draft, um, most years is not going to be some sort of automatic cure-all. Um, and, and that's why I think teams, especially teams that have veteran talent who, who look at their roster and say, we're otherwise there or otherwise close, um, are becoming more and more willing to do crazy things, i.e. the Browns, um, in order to get somebody into that, into that position. And, and when you view it through that lens, what the Broncos did to get Russell Wilson, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't seem that crazy, right? Five right. picks, two first rounders, um, you know, some players who, a couple of nice players, but, but nobody, you know, that you would view as a perennial all pro type player. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, you know, and, it's, and if he succeeds and, and they get back to the playoffs and, and compete for a championship, it'll, it'll become, it'll start seeming like an even smaller price that they paid. Well, um, this, the, the, thank you for answering me this because I'm, I'm a little more excited about uh, this Broncos season than I was, oh, say, last year. Uh, so this is this you and me is, both. <laughs> yes, this is going to be interesting. Uh, well, thank you, Nick, for coming on. And and in fact, uh, uh, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, Nick here needs his own podcast. I mean, you need to follow your buddy uh, uh, Mike Singer and get have uh, Broncos Inc. or something like that. Just, yeah, I might be I might be working on something. So ho- hopefully I can get that get that in the works. So nice. we'll, we'll, hopefully it'll be in the works soon. Nice. All right. Well, uh, thanks to uh, Nick for joining me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll be back next week. Sorry about the two week break here, but uh, I just didn't have anything to say. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, thank you all for joining me on this uh, latest uh, CSG podcast. I'll be back uh, soon with another episode. Goodbye.